You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. This week I had the privilege of traveling to Dallas, Texas for a one-night uh, trip. I uh, had a, a quick one-day meeting uh, with some other leaders in Acts 29, uh, the network that we're a part of. And um, on the plane, it, it's always a really cool opportunity to sit on an airplane because, like, nobody, they can't go anywhere, you know? It's like they're stuck talking to me. My wife makes fun of me. She's like, you're too extroverted. People hate sitting beside you on airplanes. But this conversation was actually initiated by um, the other person, but uh, there's a, a woman on the plane, and she said, oh, I heard you mentioning while you're boarding, you're from West Virginia. And she said, I, I'm on my way back from West Virginia. I was at a place called Greenbank. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool, or the observatory there, and no cell phones. And she's like, yeah. And uh, she was talking to me about that. And I was like, what are you doing up there? And she said she was an astronomer. And uh, she's working on, on a graduate degree um, at TCU, at Texas Christian. And so we got talking about the stars a little bit. And I said, well, I'm actually working on a sermon about Abraham. And she said, oh, I grew up in a Christian household, so I know all about Abraham and how God told him to look at the stars. And that would be the number of his descendants and his offspring. And and so she knew that story. I was like, that's really cool. And, um, and I said, well, you said you grew up in church, but um, do you, you know, are you a part of the church anymore? And she said, I'm not a believer anymore. And I said, well, how come? And she said, well, I, as I was looking into the stars and, and all of these things, she said she was at Green Bank this past week, literally just counting stars and, um, and doing what Abraham was supposed to do, right? And she said, I just I saw how big the universe is, and it just seems like we're, we're just insignificant. And I was like, well, it's funny you mention that because I, I would actually argue the exact opposite. When you see how big the universe is, I think that shows our significance. It shows how, how grandiose our creator is and how, how big of a creation he has made, but yet he, he hears us when, when we're sad or when we're broken or when we're happy. Um, and, he, and he empathizes with us. And, um, and it was a really, really interesting conversation that, that for me, um, helped me kind of frame up just the, the difference between those who walk in the covenant of God and those who are just blind to it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I prayed for him before we left. I asked her, I was like, could you tell me how many stars are out there? Because <laughs> it'd be good for me to know just as a pastor, I'm preaching about this. And she said, well, let me put it this way. Um, just in the Milky Way galaxy, there are 100 billion stars. And in the observable universe, there are 100 billion galaxies that presumably have that many stars as well. And I'm like, that's a lot of stars. And, uh, and I said, and the fact that God chooses to see us um, should show us we're very significant, very valuable, very important. Um, and so when, when God brings Abraham out in this field and he says, look at all that. And, and the Lord says, I'm going to create from you a nation. He doesn't just mean um, a lot of great grandkids running around for Abraham. He's speaking in spiritual terms. And so we want to dive in today to what's called covenant theology and understanding that when God made this promise to Abraham and he brings it um, right up to the precipice of fulfillment in the passage we're going to look at today, um, what he is saying is not just in earthly terms there will be a great nation called Israel, but what he is communicating is that spiritually speaking, God is going to create humans in his image and redeem them from sin and adopt them into his heavenly eternal nation and family for us to worship for all eternity. And so God is a part of something so big that we can't comprehend it, but he loves us so much that he lets us be a part of it. That's what makes us worship. That's why we lift our voices and sing each Sunday. I have four things I want you to see. Number one, our plans fall short every time. We're going to see uh, Abram uh, really blow it. 
in, in today's narrative, uh, just make a huge mistake as he tries to carry out his own plan. And I want you to see in that that your plans are going to mess up your life, and God is patient with you in that. And then uh, second, third, and fourth points of today that I want you to see is that God's plan, his better plan, his good plan for us, uh, bring us identity, uh, tell us who we are, bring us direction, tell us where we're supposed to go, and, and bring us presence, God's presence in our life. Let's look at the first one. Um, our plans fall short. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram, and the main promise, he tells him he's going to give him a land to possess, but he leaves the land that he was raised in. And it's not just that, but the main promise is offspring, that he's going to have children and descendants and uh, be grown into a great nation. And we tend to miss how much time passes before Abram's son Isaac is born. We're coming up on that in the Genesis narrative. But from the call of Abram, which happens at age 75, to the birth of Isaac, which happens at age 100, that's two and a half decades. And uh, where we pick up in that uh, in-between time today, Abram's 85 or 86, so he's 10 years into the covenant promise and living in patience, waiting for the Lord to do something. But I want you to look at your own life 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago versus where you are now, I would imagine that most of us would say it's pretty different. Um, maybe you find yourself in some places you didn't expect to find yourself. A lot can change in 10 years. And for 10 years, Abram is just continually hearing God say, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you offspring. And he's just kind of waiting for it to come to fruition. Um, and, and all of us, again, are walking in covenant with God. Um, he has created us, and it's our task to find where he wants us in life, what his will is for our life. Now, that can be hard to do. What's God, God's will for you? There's some, there's some pretty clear things in Scripture, but there's a lot of unclear things in your life of what God wants you to do. Um, the problem is we tend to look at God like a Disney trip planner, right? We want the itinerary laid out. We want all the reservations made. If he could give us a magic bracelet that lets us skip line at some places, that'd be fantastic. Um, but the reality is God doesn't operate like that. His, his uh, call on our lives is, is typically and often very ambiguous and mysterious. It's, that's why it's called a walk of faith. Um, and because many times we have to step out not really knowing what the next step may bring. And here is where Abram and Sarai are. Ten years in, as they begin to wonder, were we supposed to do something different? Were we supposed to do something different to bring about the promise? Because God said he was going to do it, but it hasn't happened. And so maybe we read the Ikea instructions wrong. Like Sarah's starting to doubt Abram. Like, honey, I think maybe you misheard God. and Maybe there's something else you were supposed to do. Okay? So they take matters into their own hands. In chapter 16, uh, verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Um, so if you can't read between the lines on what's happening here, uh, Sarai is saying, have sexual relations with my servant, Hagar, and have a child with her. Now, my job as a preacher is to teach the Bible and apply the Bible as well. So I want to teach what the Bible says and apply it to your life. So here's the first application today. It's for you husbands. If your wife ever tells you to sleep with another woman, don't do it, Okay. <laughs> Just like, write that down at the top of your note sheet today, just like an easy application from today's sermon, all right? Don't do it. Even if she tells you to like look at another woman, it's a trap. Don't do it, okay? 
Um, sometimes my wife will talk about another woman's beauty and, and acknowledge her beauty and say, she's gorgeous, she's beautiful. And like, just kind of look at me and I'm just, okay. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I'm not agreeing with it. Nope, not doing that, right? And, and so here Abram is just, he just steps into it, man. And, and this, this situation is tempting for Abram, I'm sure carnally, uh, because of the excitement of being with another woman. But I don't think it's just that. I think temptation often comes, and I think in the case of Abram, it comes because he really trusts and loves his wife. And his wife brings this up as something that she thinks that they should do to fulfill the will of God. Now, we read that and we think that's a little bit messed up, but how many times do we try to fulfill God's will in ways that are messed up? Or we, we compromise on sin issues and make up for it by our Sunday activity or our Christian activity, right? Um, now, what happens is often is we elevate a relationship above God's word. Um, many times we may, we may lean on the advice of our spouse or a really close trusted friend or someone we're dating more than we rely on what God has said to us. Here's a perfect example of that leading us astray. That even when someone we trust a lot tells us something that sounds like it might be in God's will, uh, we have to listen to God's word above all else. Verse 2 says that Abram listened not to the word of the Lord, but to the voice of Sarai, the voice of his wife. And doesn't this sound familiar? Back in Genesis 3, we talked about this. God spoke to Adam in Genesis 3.17 and said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not have eaten. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so God curses. Mankind falls into sin because Adam listens to the voice of his wife. Now, don't hear me saying that the problem is wives. The problem is wives with all their bad suggestions. I don't think that's what the Bible is communicating. Rather, the Bible is communicating that we get uh, loving relationships and we trust one another so much so that we will um, unwillingly and unknowingly lead one another into sin. You see, the problem isn't all wives tempting their husbands or all husbands being irresponsible. The problem is the depravity of men and women, all men and women. All humans are fallen and depraved and, and are, are prone to walk straight into sin. Adam and Sarai in this narrative act exactly like their parents, Adam and Eve. They try to do God's will, but they try to do it in their way. Listen to me. Heartache will always wait for you when you try to fulfill God's will your own way. Many people have gone very far from the will of God by seemingly doing good things, but they're trying to fulfill God's will their way rather than God's way. And the Bible calls us to be obedient even when we don't understand why God may call us into certain circumstances. Well, Abram listens to the voice of his wife. Verse 4 of chapter 16 says, He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. One of the reasons she may have looked on contempt at, at Sarai is, is because maybe she didn't want to have sex with Abram. Maybe this was a, a relationship she didn't desire. And because she had to submit that she was maybe forced into this or assaulted or something like that or coerced. Uh, Abram mistreats his wife by marrying Hagar in the first place. Mar Hagar then mistreats Sarai by looking on her with contempt for the situation she's found herself in. Sarai mistreats Hagar with harshness after she conceives. In verse 6, Abram tells Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Sarai deals harshly with her, and she fled from her. So maybe even physically abuses her. I mean, we've really got a whole episode of Mari Povich on our hands here. It's just, it's just gotten out of control. In six verses, right? 
For the most part, Abraham's really honored the Lord and walked with God and done what he needed to do. And here he goes from that saint to that villain, and he just blows it in six verses. Hagar runs away broken, abused. And what, what is beautiful here is the Lord is near to the vulnerable, and he extends patience and long-suffering and grace even in the midst of this mess. And here he begins a long process, a, a multi-year process of dealing with the mess that they had created. In verse 7 it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. Now, geographically, what this is telling us is she's on her way back to Egypt as a pregnant woman. She is running back to the land that she came from. And it says, the angel of the Lord found her, uh, which is probably a theophany. Again, we've seen this with Abram and, and others. Uh, this is probably an appearing, a physical appearing of Jesus Christ. Um, and so Jesus here appears to her and said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The name Ishmael means the Lord hears, and the Lord seemingly does something strange here. Sends, uh, sends Hagar and, and her unborn child right back into the terrible situation that she had fled away from. Um, what the Lord is doing is he's putting her in there, that even in the midst of their messed up plan, the Lord is going to care for her and graciously look after her. But Ishmael represents the fruit of disobedience. We'll see that he's part of the covenant. He becomes part of the covenant with Abraham. But his lineage largely will not be included in the covenant family. To this day, this narrative right here that we're reading is where Muslims depart from Jews and Christians, saying that um, Muslims believe that Ishmael was the promised son, whereas uh, Jews and Christians would say that Isaac is the promised son. But what we see here is Hagar's story, Ishmael's story, and more about them as we continue through Genesis. But really, the entire Muslim faith demonstrate God's incredible patience and long-suffering and his incredible grace to give so many people so many opportunities to see the truth of the one true God and repent and turn to him. Verse 15 tells us Hagar bore Abram a son. So it makes it clear that she went back, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And so their plan fell short, just as our foolish plans all do. It's easy to look at their plan because this is a pretty dumb plan, right? This is, this is not, it's clearly not what God wanted. Um, but I think it's also easy to look in our lives and look at what we've done in our past and be like, yeah, we had some pretty dumb plans too. And maybe you find yourself in church today and you're in the midst of a pretty dumb plan. Maybe you're just walking through a really dumb plan right now. You're trying to, you're trying to like fool yourself into saying you're doing the will of God, but, but deep down you know you're really doing it your way. God won't have any of that. He won't share his glory with you and your planning. In the remainder of the passage, God will reiterate that his plan is superior, and he refuses to operate on our terms. He does it on his. Uh, secondly, we see that God's plan is better, and it gives us an identity, a new identity. Uh, Moses fast-forwards in uh, the narrative until Ishmael is uh, 12 years old. 
They raise Ishmael in this weird family. We don't, we don't get a lot of this in-between time. It, Moses just kind of fast-forwards, flash-forward to, uh, to where he picks up the narrative. But here we have this, uh, this love triangle going on with Hagar and Sarai and, uh, and Ishmael. And um, they're not yet fulfilling God's covenant plan and identity. Um, in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Um, and so what, what God's doing here is he's repeating himself, just like he has many times. He's repeating himself, and, and he's, he's going to change Abram's identity. He's going to change his name. And identity is a, a huge deal these days. Um, I think it is, it is at the center of a lot of our secular cultural debate uh, that we have in this time. Uh, you, you're familiar with the fact that we're in the middle of Pride Month, and, um, and, and pride, the pride that is sinful in the eyes of the Lord is celebrated in our culture. And, and what's happened is, I, I, whether you're gay or straight or wherever you want to fall on a sexuality spectrum, I think the root issue is what Christians are called to is fundamentally different than what humans feel like they should do. Um, people want to identify how they feel. Um, that's just how our nature is. And the Bible says that's a sinful nature. If you want to follow the book, the Bible says that you have to deny yourself. And so where people want to identify how they feel, God says he defines our identity. And in spite, he does so in spite of how we feel. And so even if we feel one way and God tells us to be another way, that we follow after God's will rather than our own. Abram and Sarah are a perfect example of, of shifting to their own feelings for identity rather than God's imputed righteousness to them. They felt like it was a good idea to thruple instead of trust God's promise because the clock was ticking. It was not a good idea for them to follow their feelings. It was against what God had told them to do. You see, your life is not about finding yourself. And this is the fundamental difference of being a Christian. It's not about finding yourself. Your life is about finding God. It's that we turn away from our selfish desires and we turn to God and God alone. And then he defines who we are, not our feelings, not our intellect, not our culture, not our circumstances, but God alone puts identity upon us. And so Genesis 17, God speaks and preaches a little mini sermon to Abram. It says, Abram falls on his face in verse 3, and God says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The Lord here repeats what he had already told Abram many times that he would be his God, that he was going to use him to establish a, a multitude of a spiritual family coming from all nations. This is repetitious, and it was time for it to be fulfilled. Now, I want you to notice this, is that when Abram messes up and goes on his own plan in his own way and makes a mess of everything, God doesn't say, all right, I'm going to find a perfect family. 
I'm going to find a family without an illegitimate child, or I'm going to find a guy without two wives in a Mari Povich episode. He doesn't say, I'm going to find someone more ready for me to work. He says, I'm going to work through that mess for my glory. And he says, Abraham, whether you like it or not, you're going to be a part of my plan. You see, so, so many times we get in places in our life where we just want to go where we want to go, and when God tells us that he's not okay with that, either through his word or through circumstances or through, through the church, kind of communicating it, we want to buck against that, and God says, it doesn't matter. He is king. What else can we do but bow and submit to him? He has created us. Paul writes to the Romans, shall the, shall the vessel say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Who are we to question him? But rather we submit and we follow in worship. And so he tells Abraham, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm still going to fulfill promise through you. I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to be good to you, even though you've messed it all up. What takes us six chapters in the Bible and, and just a month of preaching here at our church was two and a half decades of patience and waiting from Abraham and Sarah. And God marks this by changing their names. Their identities will now become new as they step into fulfillment. Abram, now your name is going to be Abraham. From father of a nation, your name now means father of many nations. And the, and the church in the Old Testament anticipated this truth. They sang about it. By the time Jesus comes to earth um, in the incarnation, the Pharisees had, had forgotten. They forgot their purpose. But before the Pharisees, um, they sang about this truth. They understood really well that the covenant was to draw all nations to the one true God. In Psalm 47, a worship song they used to sing, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The temple that they built for a house of worship was called, they nicknamed it, a house of prayer for the nations. The plan all along was to draw all the world to see and be the family of God. The culmination of truth is actually seen in the New Testament as well. Paul gets on Mars Hill in Athens and he preaches a sermon and he says, he made from every uh, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Not only does God foretell this great truth in Abraham, but also his wife. He changes Sarai's name too. In Genesis 17, 15, if you skip down a little bit in the passage, God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So God's saying, I know you've tried to do this thing on your own by getting Hagar as your side chick here, but here I'm reiterating to you my original and good plan is that it will be Sarah who will have a child, the promised child. And I'm changing her name from Sarai to Sarah. Both names, by the way, in Hebrew mean princess. And he changes her name subtly because Sarai is possessive in Hebrew. And he changes it to Sarah, which means the same thing, princess, but is not possessive. So as they've tried to do things their own way, God changes Sarah's name to communicate to her, you will be royalty. You're part of a royal family, but it's not yours. You don't possess it. You're a part of it, but you don't own it. The Lord changes her name and, and, and calls her princess, but not queen, because she's not the ruler, but instead an eternal ruler would come from her, a king of all kings that we know as Jesus Christ. You see, God foretells her place 
and Abraham's place in spiritual royalty. And that's their identity. And not only does he give them a new identity, but God's plan also gives us direction. In God's plan, we're not just given a new identity as as Christians, uh, but we're also given new actions. We're to act differently. We're to live differently. The world won't be okay with us and our standards because we are altogether different now that we have given our lives to Christ. Our actions become an outward sign of an inward identity that God has placed within us. This is why all God's covenants have signs that are, that are either professions of who we are or reminders of who we are, oftentimes both. Here he gives one of those signs to Abraham, and it's a little bit weird. So my apologies, but this is the word of God, so buckle up. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, Jeremy and I just released a video this past week about circumcision, and so um, if you don't feel like I preach long enough on circumcision, which is maybe none of you, um, you can go and watch that video. Um, But this sign of the covenant does seem strange, all right? We can acknowledge that first and foremost, but we have to remember what this promise was. It was a promise of offspring. It was to remind the people of the promise of offspring, and so God marks their reproductive organ. And I don't want to be too crass, but by removing some of the the foreskin of the penis, uh, the promise was literally in front of them every day. I mean, like dudes, you know, you see it every day, right? And so this is what God had done. And we look at this and we're like, this is really strange. But it, number one, it put, the, it put it in front of them daily. Number two, it marked that, that the very act of reproducing physically would be marked by God's promise. And, and, and what we see is that number three, it gives them a, a very real test of faith. Is Abraham actually going to carry this out? Now, I know every dude in here, if God told him to do something that radical, would be like, I don't know. I, don't th- I think I just had a bad burrito at Taco Bell last night. I don't know if we're supposed to do this, but look what Abraham does. Verse 22 says, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God has said to him. So he's like, guys, gather up, dudes. We got to do something. He's like over here sharpening a knife. They're like, what are we doing, Abraham? He's like, we're going to go out back behind the tents. And I met with God today. We got to do something, okay? And just like, just kind of wild, okay? Um, but again, Abraham is demonstrating extraordinary faith here. And God brings about the promise, not just in physical reproduction, but he begins to foreshadow spiritual reproduction in, in what we would call evangelism and discipleship or the Great Commission. And it's really God reiterating the, the, the command that he gave in chapter 1 of the book. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. You see, God's command of multiplication still applies. Physically, we fulfill that through raising children to be disciples. There are exceptions to that. Um, there, there are people that can't fulfill that. But generally speaking, it is a good thing for you to fill God's command of multiplying humans. Uh, raising them to love the Lord. But also, all of us are called to, sp- to fill that spiritually as well. That we are called to spiritually reproduce. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Again, all nations. Abraham, father of many nations. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so even if we're not reproducing physically, we are all to be reproducing spiritually. And again, it's, it's foreshadowing with physical offspring a day that the church would pursue spiritual offspring. And, and what we're given as a sign of the covenant is not any kind of cutting of our organs or parts, thank God. Um, and so it has no bearing on us today, but rather we're given baptism. In Colossians 2, Paul actually puts circumcision and baptism in the same paragraph. In Colossians 2, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so Paul says, spiritually speaking, when you become a Christian, you put off the flesh. Uh, with a spiritual circumcision, you do away with your sinful past. And then he compares it to baptism in the next verse, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so in the old covenant, circumcision happened after birth. In the new covenant, baptism now instead happens after rebirth. After we're born again, we are baptized. And so one practical application of this is some of you need to consider baptism. Some of you uh, maybe have flippantly said, well, I know that doesn't save me, and I believe in the resurrection, and I trust God, and I love Jesus, and, and I just I don't like getting in front of people. I don't like doing all that, and so I'm not going to do that. Well, I, I'm sure there were a lot of people in covenant Israel who, who maybe didn't want to be circumcised, right? God's made it a little less radical, but still a radical profession of faith by getting in front of people and being dunked in water is showing as an outward sign of an inward identity, that we've been changed, that we've been buried, and our old self is gone, and we've been raised to walk in newness of life with King Jesus. And perhaps greatest of all is God's plan gives us his presence, gives us his physical presence with us. All of this would have been a lot for Abraham and Sarah to take in. Even after they, they probably looked at somewhat successfully solved the problem, yeah, we couldn't have kids, and now we have a kid. Um, and, and as they're hearing this, they're trying to process all of this and um, maybe not doing so well. And so God's presence is going to kind of help them receive his plan. You see, in God's promises and covenants to us, this is probably the best news of all is that he is with us. Amen? And when Jesus gives his great commission, he tells us to go and make disciples. That's a, that's a tall order, right? You mean I'm going to have to talk to people? About, about religion? Like, there's two things we're not supposed to talk about, religion and politics, and God wants me to talk about one of the two untalkable things? Well, Jesus is with you, right? He says, you're not, you're not on your own on this mission. He, he gives the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples. And he says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And when Abraham and Sarah heard that they're going to have a baby at age 190, they, they laughed at it. They laughed in doubt. Just couldn't believe it. One of our deacons, Travis Hatfield's getting ready to have a baby. He's going to be almost 50 uh, when he has a baby. And he was talking to me about that. And I was like, man, that's nothing. Abraham was twice your age, dude. <laughs> yeah, he is old. Um, <laughs> but here in Genesis 17, 17, it says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham laughs at God. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, and the very first thing recorded that Abraham does with his new name is laugh at God. That's why God, when he changed his name, he just inserted the word ha into his name. 
Some of y'all can write that down to get that. But Abraham, his laughter is really, it's really about disbelief and doubt. He's really just not receiving God's plan. And, and it's evidenced by the very next sentence, verse 18. Abraham speaks back to, after he laughs at God, he has the audacity to speak back to God. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, that's a little bit of confusing language, but what, what he's essentially saying is, God, you don't, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do the impossible with me and Sarah. I've got Ishmael. He's probably thinking he's a strong young man. He helps me around the house. He does chores with us. Look at him. He's a strapping young lad. Use him. Build the great promised nation out of him. He's still trying to do God's will his own way. And God answers in verse 19. He says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You, you know what? When, when we try to evolve God's plan that he has revealed and written down and we've had in his word for thousands of years and we try to shape it contextually and culturally to fit in our agenda and what we think it ought to look like, God says, no. It doesn't matter your circumstances. My plan is a good plan. And it is the plan that God will follow. Fittingly, he says, you're going to name your son Isaac. The name Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. He says, you're going to name your son laughter just to remind you of the fact that you laughed at my plan. And because they laughed and doubted, what God does graciously is he physically comes into their presence. That, that God's presence is going to help them believe the impossible. In chapter 18, I'll cover about half of the, the chapter of 18, um, and then we'll pick up where I leave off next week. But in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He's trying to get some shade. He'd been circumcised. He's just struggling. He's just hanging out there. And the Lord shows up. Again, this is a theophany. This is Jesus appearing. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw him, he ran from the tent of the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. This is in, in a posture of worship. And he said, Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, we'll talk more about these three men next week as they, they're actually en route to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's homosexual sin in those cities, and God ultimately brings wrath and destroys those cities. Um, but, but I believe this is Jesus and two angels that are coming down and, and meeting with Abram. And, and he... They show him hospitality. They go, kind of like when company shows up unexpected at your house, you kind of scramble to clean a little bit and make some food, and throw, throw some drinks together. And so they do that. But more importantly, now he's ready to listen and believe because now he's in the Lord's presence. He's standing before God. And what I want you to apply to your heart today is, that, is you need to know this truth about yourself. You are less likely to believe in God's plan for your life and to believe in his promises on your life when you're not in the presence of God. When you, don't, when, you, when you don't spend effort being in God's presence, when you stop reading his word, when you stop praying, when you stop talking about him as a family, when church becomes optional in your life, when, when God's presence evolves to the point that it's, it's on its way out of your everyday routines, then you will struggle to believe that his plan is actually good for you. And many of you, need to maybe acknowledge the fact that maybe you've been coming to church, but that don't mean you're walking in the Lord's presence. 
And if, and if, if it's not there, then when God communicates and leads you through the spirit that lives within you to do the radical things that Christians are called to do, you'll begin to laugh at those things rather than move in obedience. The rest of the narrative tells us that Sarah also laughs. In verse 9, it says, they said to him, the Lord says, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Sarah, just like her husband, laughs at God's plan. Says there's no way. Disbelief and doubt creeps in. And Jesus looks at Abraham and Sarah, and he says, Anything too hard for me? I know there are many of us that are, that are facing something today, right now, that we would look at, and in our flesh, we would be tempted to laugh and say, there's nothing the Lord can do. I've just messed this up too much. It's too far gone. Or, or many of us might even have fooled ourselves into thinking that, that there is no problem for the Lord to solve in our life, that, you, that you've solved it all, you've got it all figured out. I want you to look at your life this morning. What has God called you to that you've laughed at? Maybe you've forgotten the chuckle you've given him. Yeah, I don't need to be in biblical community. I'm, I'm introverted. I don't, I don't want to know people in the church because I, you know, I don't want them to know me. Well, that's God's plan for you. Have you laughed at that? Or, or evangelism. Maybe there are people in your life that God's put, that they're, you're, the, you're the most likely Christian that they'll listen to. You, you realize that? I want you to think of someone right now. There are people in every one of your lives that you are the, the most likely Christian that they know that they'll hear out about the gospel. Or this radical thing that, that you're supposed to make disciples, teach people to love Jesus and live with him in that calling. Or that you're supposed to be on mission with a local church to expand God's kingdom to all nations. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to do something so radical as sell all your stuff and move to another country. Or plant a church. Or enter ministry. Preach a sermon. Begin to disciple someone. These things are radical things, and, and we, we feel the stirrings of the Spirit when we read about these things in God's Word, and, and if we're not careful, we just chuckle at them and keep going to church. Can we get sick of that? Can we be tired of that, finally? That just the normal Christian routine of church on Sunday, sports after Sunday, back to work on Monday, is just not good enough for us. God's called us to something much better than that. And I would just beg you this morning that you would examine your life and you would ask yourself, am I living in God's will? And if you're not, the time is today to stop laughing at God's plan and submit to it. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.